church of God which is at Corinth to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you are enriched in Him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. God, I again just thank you so much for the privilege we have of, of being in relationship with you and having your word, being instructed by your spirit. And we pray, God, again, that we just would, would hear you and that we would yield to you, Lord, and that you would have the freedom to work in our lives for your honor and glory that you desire and in which we also, God, want to be in agreement with. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be back. I appreciate Clay and Bill preaching for me while Patsy and I were gone. Torchbearers had a, an unusual kind of special meeting um, in Europe and Sweden, and so we flew over for that. We were gone for about a week, then um, getting over jet lag when we got back. Wonderful meeting. The Lord's just doing a, a real neat work, a new work in Torchbearers. Everybody was encouraged and uh, I left feeling like it's one of the best gatherings we've ever had in, in the years I've been with Torchbearers, so I'm just very thankful for that. Sweden's a beautiful country as well, so it wasn't, you know, we weren't suffering being there. Um, it's, it's time to start a new series, and, and I've really been wrestling a lot for a number of weeks now on where to go. I've looked back through my um, not complete history of what I've preached. In fact, my records only go back to about 2000, and I've been preaching much longer than that. And, um, and I have preached 1 Corinthians 2002, um, so 16 years ago. Um, as a church, we went through 1 Corinthians. So I asked the campers last week in camp, how many of you have been here to camp before? And 90% of them raised their hands. And I said, how many of you have heard me teach before? Most of them raised their hands. And I said, how many of you remember what I taught? Nobody raised their hand. So <laughs> you're no different. So you probably don't remember anything. <laughs> Brian's going to be the exception. I actually was thinking about Exodus as well. And you know, it occurs to me there's not a lot of difference between the two books. But the reason I've, I've kind of moved toward 1 Corinthians is because I teach 1 Corinthians at His Hill every year, and, um, and I didn't want it to be too redundant for the new students that will be coming in, you know, that if I teach 1 Corinthians later on that they, you know, during the school year that they would get it twice. So, but you know, you think about the, the church in Corinth, and you know, if you've never read the book of Corinthians, and most everybody would know, I think, you know, if anybody just walking on the street knows anything about the Bible, they, they heard anything, they would go, that was one messed up church. And there's a lot of problems in the Corinthian church. A lot of it was just simply due to their location and, what, and, and, the, and the, the godlessness of the world that they were living in and what they had come out of. Not unlike the people of Israel in the days of their Egyptian bondage. 
Can you think about it? Before Israel was led out of Egypt, their culture was not what we would call a Christian culture. It was not even really a Jewish culture. The one distinctive of the Jewish people that they were to maintain that would make them culturally distinct from the other people was circumcision. And they weren't even practicing that. And so there wasn't really, I think for all practical purposes in terms of behavior, there probably was not a dime's difference between an Israelite and an Egyptian in those days. They may have looked racially a little bit different. They may have dressed a little different, but there was really culturally practically zero difference. And so when God led Israel out of Egypt, not only did they need to be delivered, and that was just not only just a physical, but that was a spiritual deliverance, and, and, the, and the physical is a picture of the spiritual, but they needed to become different people. Not just geographically, but, but in every way. And so many people have said what's going on in the book of Exodus is that God is establishing a new culture. He's giving these people a law that's brand new. He, he's, he's governing the minutia of their lives. He's, he's separating out a people for himself. That's no small process. The same thing is what God has done for you and I. He has, has delivered us from this world system, but we still live in the world. And he is in the business through his spirit and the word of God of making us less like the world all the time. The moment that you put your faith in Christ, you become light and salt. You're different. You're a new creature. Paul's going to talk about that when he writes to the Corinthians. You are a new creation in Christ. But like the Corinthians, we don't always look like we're new creations. And we can look more like the world than we do like Jesus. The Corinthians had the unfortunate... Um, um, situation. I wanted to say privilege, but it wasn't a privilege because Canada had an unfortunate privilege. But they, they, they were the only city in the European world that had two seaports. And if you get out your maps, it's the last book of the Bible, and look up maps there, you'll see where Corinth is. And it, and it had that unique distinction of having a seaport on the west and a seaport on the east. Now, we know with seaports comes great prosperity, but also comes great sin, lots of wickedness, lots of prostitution, lots of corruption. So just take that and double it, and that was the Corinthian situation. So they are known through the, through the Roman Empire as being one of the most wicked cities known to man. There were, it was just bad. Okay, it, it, the, the, we don't have probably a modern comparison today. They, they had it bad. And so in that context, God carves out a church. And by the way, church is from the Greek word ekklesia, which means called out. So they've been called out of the cesspool of Corinth, but they're still in the cesspool. So we shouldn't be too hard on these people when we read this, this letter. There's all kinds of problems going on here. You know, I, I, I read not long ago that um, scorpions are actually good for something. Um, 
unlike cats. But um, anyway, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Jane. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Scorpion venom, doctors have discovered, actually illumines cancer cells. And so their doctors have made a, a tumor paint, they call it, out of scorpion venom. And they can paint that scorpion venom on a, on a cancerous tumor, and it lights up. And so the good thing of that is that the doctor can distinguish the healthy cells from the cancerous cells, and they can make sure to get the entire cancer, all the tumor and all of its tentacles. Only the Lord could do that. And, and so my, I think, isn't that what the Lord does? I mean, we can get so much wrapped up in the world that we don't even know how much we're like the world. This is one of the benefits of traveling to other places. And I'm telling you, Europe is a post-Christian world. And I think it's bad in the United States. Try going to Europe. It is so much worse. Trying to live a distinctive Christian life in Sweden is extremely difficult. And I'm not going to spend the whole sermon talking about what the Christians are having to deal with there. But it's in many ways, sadly, they've just given in. It's, it's too costly to be different. And so there's so many areas that are still battlefronts for us that are already victories for the world in Europe. But we can become so much just, we don't even see the problem anymore. And that's where we need the Word of God and we need the, the Spirit of God because God's Spirit can shine the light on what the cancer is that we're not even seeing. And that's what the Lord's doing here with Paul in Corinth. I mean, there are things that Paul's bringing up that were non-issues for them. And Paul writes and says, here's some tumor paint <laughs> to light up the problem. It was actually a non-issue for the Corinthian church that there is a man who is involved sexually with his stepmother. And it was a non-issue for them. That's pretty amazing. And, and so then you go through the list of things that are problems in this church. The number one problem is disunity at least the potential of it. And, and some say that every single problem in, in Corinth comes back to the issue of, of division within the body of Christ. But divisions, sexual immorality, lawsuits, they were suing each other. Um, they had all kinds of issues about marriage and singleness and divorce. There were issues about Christian liberty. There were issues about communion. There were issues about church order, there were, there were issues about spiritual gifts, and they even had issues about the afterlife and the resurrection. And you think of all these things that they had problems with, you know, there's the, there's, in hermeneutics, it's called the law of proportion. And so, in other words, you can know what the big point is that God's trying to make by how much time he spends on it. And of all these things, I just listed nine different big problems that are going on in the Corinthian church. I would say sexual immorality was the big one. Lawsuits was the big one. Divorce was the big one. 
But in terms of the amount of space given to the problems, by far, Paul spends the majority of time talking about Christian liberty and spiritual gifts. That's where most of Paul, Paul spent most of his time. Those seem to be the biggest issues where they were departing from a uniqueness, a, 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 a visible, distinctive Christian lifestyle. And Paul had to come in and say, let's paint this tumor. And it couldn't have been very pleasant for them to hear. Remarkable book. And one of the things that makes this book so remarkable is that these first nine verses, which I just read, mention not a single problem in the Corinthian church. Is that how you would have started this letter? I wouldn't have. I would have started this letter and said, Dear Corinthians, what is wrong with you? You've got to be kidding me. And he doesn't. He starts Galatians that way. Dear Galatians. And then he goes, have you departed Christ? I mean, he re- I mean, just straight out of the gate with the book of Galatians, Paul's hammering them. Not with Corinthians. He spends nine verses talking about, really, their identity in Christ. All that they are in Christ and the person of Jesus Christ. Now, before getting into that, I think it would be wrong to say that the book of Corinthians is about these nine problems. Those are simply symptoms. They are symptoms. Closer to the truth is that the problem that the Corinthian church is facing is a failure to properly understand the cross of Jesus Christ. In one way or another, Paul is constantly bringing them back to the implications of what the cross of Jesus Christ means. There is no room for pride. And most divisions have as their root pride. There is no place for self in the cross of Jesus Christ. But really, even more basic than a failure to properly understand and apply the cross of Jesus Christ is a failure to live out their identity with Jesus Christ. I believe that's what Paul is wanting to address in these first nine verses. He's going to remind them of Jesus Christ and their identity with him and say, now let's talk about these problems. I think it was one of the Greek philosophers who first noted that people are motivated by all that they do by one of three factors. And then the the German philosopher Kierkegaard picked up on it and he wrote apparently extensively about it. And those three factors which motivate us in all the decisions we make are either pain, what other people think, or internal principle. Or if we would say as Christians, the person of Jesus Christ. And you think about how true that is. 
And when you talk to somebody, you've, you've got somebody that you're a friend or a family member who is, who is a Christian, but they aren't living like it. How do you confront them? Where do you start? Most of us want to start with the dire consequences that can happen if they continue doing what they're doing, right? You continue drinking yourself like to death like that, and you will die. You're going to get scoliosis of the liver, and you're going to end your life, right? You continue to live that kind of sexual immoral, immoral life, and all kinds of diseases could come on you. And so we start with, with that, oftentimes, in dealing with people. Paul doesn't. See, that's what's so unique about this book. So he, because, see, if a person is at the lowest level of, of moral responsibility, all that they're responding to is the pain that their actions could cause them. That's all they care about. And so they're just avoiding pain. And if they feel like that the actions aren't going to cause me any pain, then why not do it? That is the lowest level of moral development. One step higher is to be concerned about what other people think. And the highest level of moral development is that you're operating from, from truth, from basic truth, from principle. And for us as Christians, from, the, from God's word and the person of Jesus Christ. And it would seem that when we're dealing with Christians especially, we should assume that they're at the highest level morally. And we should start with the person of Jesus Christ and that person's identity, their oneness with him. And then if that doesn't work, if they're not responsive to that, then let's talk about the other things. And Paul does all, he appeals to all three levels of moral development in 1 Corinthians. His, his biggest one is the one that we go to last, sometimes don't even think of, and that is our identity with Jesus Christ. But we shouldn't make any mistake, Paul also appeals to the other two levels of moral development. Several times in this letter, he says, I write these things, to, I say these things, for example, with lawsuits, I say these things to your shame. In chapter 11, he says, none of the other churches are doing what you're doing. Another place in chapter 11, he says, I shall not praise you for what you're doing. In chapter 15, he says, I speak this to your shame. So there Paul's appealing to that middle ground, that middle level of moral development. Don't you care about what I think? Don't you care about what anybody else thinks? That's not the highest level. And even though Paul doesn't start here, there are at least four times in this book where Paul says, you can die. If this continues, you can die. In chapter 3, talking about the man who is involved sexually with his stepmother, Paul says, I've already delivered him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Meaning if it, if it takes his death in order to preserve his soul, then I'm asking God to do that. Same thing in chapter 5, chapter 10, chapter 11. In one way or another, at least four times in this book, Paul warns Christians, if your behavior doesn't begin to match the Lord Jesus Christ, you could die. But he doesn't start there. He starts with our identity with Jesus Christ. And I find that 
very challenging. Because honestly, that is often not my first thought when dealing with people. But I can tell you, I sure appreciate it when people have dealt with me that way. And said, Charlie, I think maybe you're forgetting who you are. Forgetting who Jesus is and what it means to be in relationship with him. There are 10 things that Paul says here about the, about the Corinthian church. Knowing their problems, I'm surprised he could find 10 good things to say. If you can, Paul can find 10 good things to say about the Corinthians, we should be able to find good things to say about any Christian. He begins and says, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, before we move on, just a quick parenthesis. You need to go back and read Acts 18 to find out who Sosthenes is. He was the leader of the synagogue in Corinth, an unbeliever who hated Paul. It was his brilliant idea, he thought, to drag Paul into a secular Roman court and accuse him of violating Roman law by preaching Christ. And so this was a huge court. This wasn't just a low-level court. This was like a federal court. And the Romans operated just like we do today, that when a federal court makes a decision, it becomes precedent for the other courts in the other precincts. And this judge, Galileo, threw the case out. He said, you may think this is about Roman law, but he said, this is about your law, and I'm not going to hear it. And so not only did it not go against Paul, it actually worked in favor of Christianity. So now there is a Roman federal judge who has said that Christianity and Judaism are part of the same cloth. And if Judaism is protected by Roman law, then so is Christianity. It was a huge decision when he threw that case out. Had ramifications potentially for, for the entire Roman Empire. Well, now Sosthenes is not looking like the hero that he thought he was going to be. And the, and the Jews that were standing around the, the judge, when the judge gave that court decision, all the Jews in the room attacked Sosthenes. And in front of the judge, he didn't even care. He just walked out of his courtroom. They start beating him up. And then we never hear of Sosthenes again until verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 1. And now he's not Sosthenes the enemy. He is Sosthenes our brother. This is where I think we're supposed to use our sanctified imagination. Okay? I obviously have one. I hope you do as well. Connect the dots. Okay? How did this man come to faith? Now, his own friends are beating him up. Next time we hear about him, he's a Christian. So this is where my sanctified imagination takes me. Paul was in the room watching this. And I think Paul jumped in and helped that man and got beat up himself in the process. And when it was all over, there were two beaten and bloody men 
Paul and Sosthenes. And Sosthenes has an epiphany. My enemy is my friend. And I think it was the example of Paul. Paul who said, don't take your own revenge in Romans chapter 12. Paul who said, return, overcome evil with good. I think Paul acting in, in, in accord with his faith, in consistency with his Lord, that Paul got in there and helped this man. And the man gave his life to Christ. Why would Paul even include that? in this letter, because these are people who, as Christians, are acting more like Sosthenes before he was saved than they are acting like Jesus. And Paul, by mentioning, just dropping this name into this letter, is recalling to these men, these people, powerfully of what a changed life looks like, what God alone can do to redeem someone and turn them from an enemy of the cross to a brother in Christ. Powerful. I mean, you think, man, you would have read that and you go, whoa. I mean, just all the memories, all the history would have come, come flooding back into the minds of the Corinthian people when Paul mentioned Sosthenes. And then he begins to talk about this church, verse 2. To the church of Satan. No. To the church of the world, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. You are God's called out people. Remember church, ecclesia, called out ones. You are God's people. Paul never questions the salvation of these people. How many times are we guilty of questioning the salvations of those who profess faith in Christ, but we don't see a difference in their lives? Paul says, you're the church of God. No question about it. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Don't read sanctified as meaning you've been made perfect. Sanctified simply means you have been set apart. For a purpose. God has called you out, you're at the church, and God has set you apart in Christ Jesus for a purpose. Every Christian is part of the church of God. Every evangelical church where the gospel is being preached and people have come to faith in Christ, that is the church of God. And we are sanctified set apart, and we are saints. All of us. There are, no, there are saints that don't act saintly. Amen. I'm one of them. But every person who has placed his faith in Jesus Christ is a saint. You don't have to die and wait 300 years for the Catholic Church to declare you a saint. God declares you a saint the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Saints by calling who, in, who with all in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. 
So just think about these. I'm just going to read. I just made the list here. Just think with me because we're running out of time. Church of God, they've been sanctified. They are saints by calling. They are those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace has been given to them in Christ. They have been enriched in everything, in all speech and in all knowledge. The testimony of Christ has been confirmed in them. They are not lacking in any gift. They are awaiting eagerly the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you think about it? No matter how worldly Christians can become, every Christian is waiting for when this is going to be over and we can be with Jesus. I mean, I'm telling you, don't you know that to be true? Even Christians where you just go, could they be any more godly than they are? They just go, man, it would be great when this is over and we can be with the Lord. Even the Corinthians were awaiting eagerly the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, confirmed blameless by Christ. That is a positional truth. No matter how raunchy their lifestyles are, God sees them in Christ as blameless. They have become the very righteousness of God in Christ. And when the, Lord, when the day of the Lord Jesus Christ takes, occurs, these people, these Corinthians, as well as you and I, will be confirmed by God as blameless in Christ. And they have been called into fellowship with God's Son. And God is faithful. Now, some observations about this. Not only is Paul appealing to their identity in Christ throughout this, these nine verses, church, saints, enriched in everything, awaiting eagerly, all these things I mentioned, he is clearly saying, remember your oneness with Jesus. Before he mentions any problem, remember who you are in Christ. He's lifting them up. He's not focusing on the sin. See, as Lewis Berry Chafer the one time said, as Christians, we don't preach against sin. We lift up Christ. And he used the illustration of leaves falling off a tree. And he says, we don't preach against the dead leaves. We preach Christ in his life and the dead leaves fall off. Paul is saying, let me remind you of your relationship, your identity, your fundamental oneness with Jesus Christ. Let me remind you of who you are because obviously you've forgotten it. Right? Isn't that what we do? Every time we've sinned, we are not remembering who we are in Christ. But the bigger thing is, he's reminding them of Jesus. And in these first 10 verses, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 10, which I didn't read, in 10 verses, 10 times, Jesus is mentioned. I don't think there's another 10 verses like this in the New Testament, where the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned specifically by name 10 times in 10 verses. But here's an observation. Not one of those ten times is he called simply Jesus. Not a one. Go to the book of Hebrews, and you have to get into the third chapter of Hebrews before Jesus is ever called Christ. All of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, and the first part of chapter 3 of Hebrews, Jesus is only Jesus. The point is, the name Jesus emphasizes the humanity of Christ. Christ 
emphasizes the deity of Christ. And obviously, Lord emphasizes that he is in charge. And as you read through these listings of Christ's name, never is it simply Jesus. It is always either Christ, Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, six of the ten times, Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ our Lord. So not only is Paul reminding these people of their identity with Jesus, but he specifically wants them to remember that the one that they have been made one with is God. And if you've been made one with God, and God lives in you, let me tell you, folks, there is no excuse for living the way that you live. See, if your relationship is just with a man, then you still have excuse. But if the living God lives in you, then it's as though Paul said, I don't care where you live. I don't care how bad Corinth is, because God is in you, and it can be different. Many, many years ago, I had to confront a guest speaker at his hill. Not a pleasant experience. 20 years older than myself. I was about 22, 23. And there happened to be really no male leadership at his hill during that brief time. And so the woman who was in charge, she said, there's a reason why you're here. <laughs> I want you to confront this man because I can't do it as a woman. And I'm going, great. And this man was kind of a, a not kind of, he was an internationally known leader within Torchbearers. And the way that he was talking in his sessions was, was not appropriate. And I had to sit him down in, in his room and say, this is really, really awkward and hard for me. But I need to tell you, this needs to change how you're talking. He goes, what are you talking about? So I go, great. Now I've got to give all the, so I, got, so I, got to, I, got, I had to quote him. This, <laughs> and, and it was so awful. It's just, I, it, it seared me. And um, never forgotten it. Well, I had to, because I wasn't getting a good response from him, he felt like that I was overreacting and it was just a cultural thing. I had to call up his boss, Major Ian Thomas. <laughs> Nobody in their right mind just willingly called up Major Thomas. <laughs> you know, it, it just, it was, it was like calling up God, you know, and, and, and it, 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 it you couldn't expect good things to happen. And, and so I had to call him up, and I, had, and I had to say, Major Thomas, you know this man. Yeah, I know him well. I had to confront him over things that he's saying. What is he saying? And, oh, here I go again. I've got to repeat it all again. So I laid it out. And I said, I didn't get a very good response. I need your help. Well, what did he say? He told me it's just a cultural thing that we're just really, really conservative here in South Texas. And boy, he just lit up, Major Thomas did. And he goes, culture has nothing to do with it. 
what that man is saying is contrary to the person of Jesus Christ. And I don't care what culture he's living in, it is not Christ. And so he dealt with it. <laughs> but what a great lesson and a great truth. We live in a more conservative, socially, morally conservative society in South Texas than most Christians do in this world. But a little bit of tumor paint, a little bit of the Word of God shows us just how much we are also unlike Christ. And we can't boast in how much we may be better than Sweden. Sweden's not the standard. Jesus is. And there's no excuse for any Christian anywhere in this world to be like the world when the living God lives in him. That's what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. So that's a one-sermon overview basically, of the whole book. I'll close this in prayer.